I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. I'm preaching through John this summer. We're in chapter 4, and I've titled the message, Life-Changing Belief. There may be things you claim to believe, but if you if it hadn't changed your life, you probably don't believe it. In other words, if it's a belief you have that doesn't affect you, you probably don't believe it. How many of you believe fire is hot? How many of you were taught that as a child, but you had to test it for yourself? Most of those are guys that raise their hands. The ladies are going, what? what's wrong with you people? Well, men are that way. I was told that knives were sharp. But it was in, not until my dad finally trusted me with a pocket knife, and I was so happy to have it, and I'm playing with it, and then I see blood running down from my thumb and recognize, this is sharp. How many of you, be honest, how many of you walked up to a sign or what's beside the sign that says wet paint, but you still got to touch the paint? Anybody besides me? Yeah. And the ladies are still going, why don't you just believe the sign? Ladies, that's why in Genesis it said it's not good for a man to be alone. <laughs> because we would get in more trouble if it wasn't for you, so thank you. We come to this passage in John where we're going to talk about belief. I love the story that I read this week of a miner, a coal miner, who interrupted John Hutton, the famous Welsh preacher, by leaping to his feet in the middle of the sermon and leading the whole congregation into doxology. Hutton was so taken aback, he said to himself, I've got to meet this guy. So later the man explained that he had been a Christian only a few months, and it was also gloriously different that he could not sit still while the word was being preached. Then he said, I was a bad lot. I drank, I pawned the furniture, I knocked my wife about, and now life is real life and splendidly worthwhile. When asked how he fared among his fellows down in the pit, he laughed and replied, Today they ask me, you don't seriously credit that old yarn about Jesus turning water into wine, to which he answered, I don't know anything about water and wine, but I know this, that in my house, Christ has turned beer into furniture, and that is a good enough miracle for me. Belief affects and impacts your life. We're going to look at a couple of cases, really three cases of that this morning. Let me read just the first few verses of our passage, starting in verse 39 through 42. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritan came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Just to give you context, we looked at this last week. Jesus had to go through Samaria. We know he really didn't have to. Most people would have avoided it, but it was the shortest way to go. He had to because he had a divine appointment with a woman with a bad reputation that he's going to meet about noon, the heat of the day, when he's thirsty and he asks her for a drink of water. And she said, how are you even talking to me? Because Samaritans don't deal with, Jews don't deal with Samaritans. We went into the details of all that last week, but just... Suffice it to say, pretty much any other Jew, especially a rabbi, would have aborted Samaritan at all costs and would have no way they would have spoken to this woman in public. So because of her, many believed. So what happened? Jesus, he asked her for a drink of water. 
He said, you don't even have anything to draw with. And or then he says, I could give you water. If you knew who it was talking to you, you'd ask me, and I would give you water that would spring up with inside of you that would well up like living water. He said, where are you going to get this water? You don't have anything to draw with, and the well is deep. And he said, finally convinces her to, to have this water. He said, sir, give me the water. He said, well, go call your husband. She says, well, I don't have a husband. He said, well, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're, married, the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. What she was basically saying is, we've been promised that there's a Messiah coming. Are you that guy? And they have more of a conversation about worship. And then the best line of the whole chapter, verse 28, I love this, so the woman left her water pot. Does that strike you like it does me? This woman has met Jesus. She's received water that could spring up within her that literally would gush over and, and, and nourish other people besides herself. And the thing she came to that well to get in the heat of the day was water. And she came in the heat of the day because she didn't want to have a conversation with anybody else because of her reputation. And yet, when she meets Jesus, she leaves her water pot, goes back into the city, and what does she do? She tells everybody. I've met the guy. I've met the Messiah, the one that's been promised that we've waited on. He's here. I've met him. See, when you have good news, you can't wait to share it with people, can you? Any grandparents in the room? Had a conversation on the phone this morning. I see you, Clay. Clay called me this morning to ask if we were having services and what time they started. And he, he's a brand-new grandfather. Three weeks. Is that right? Is this your first? Fourth. Well, I'm expecting a grandchild. Can you tell? <laughs> no, that's my Corona 50. Um, we're expecting our first grandchild at the end of July, and so we're excited. We don't mind telling everybody about that, right? Because it's good news. This woman had good news, so what does she do with her good news? She comes into town, and even though she was a woman with a bad reputation, it didn't matter anymore. She leaves her water pot to go tell everybody about Jesus, when you have good news, you want to share it with everybody that you come in contact with. And so the Samaritans come out, and they start talking to Jesus. In fact, she said to them, they've told me everything I've ever done. We, she knows he's the Messiah because he told her everything she'd ever done. I think there's more to the conversation than, George, than John records because all he talks about with her is her husband's situation. She's been married five times. She's living with a guy that's not her husband. But he's told her everything she's ever done. And I want you to stop for a minute. If, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Jesus knows everything you've ever done. And he doesn't say it's all bad. The part we know is bad. But it could be some of it was good. But the thing I think that's missing in our culture is to understand God loves you. And he knows everything you've done. The stuff you've kept hidden from everybody else that you thought nobody's ever seen this because I've done it in darkness or I've done it with just a few people. You thought nobody really knows this about me. And yet the truth is God knows everything. He knows the good and the bad, and he loves you anyway. Is that good news? That's good news. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. God loves you. And this woman tells the Samaritan people, he told me everything about me. He knows everything I've done. And he still talked to me. 
he still offered me salvation because that's what he's offering her, this water that he's given her, this living water that's going to well up within her. Well, that's exactly what had happened. It welled up within her, and if you have a well that's welling up within you, it's going to splash on other people. So many Samaritans believed, but more than that, now that they've talked to Jesus, many more believe because of his word. In fact, I love it. There's never a miracle. There's not a miracle mentioned here. We're going to look at a miracle in a minute. But it's the word of the woman, and then it's the word of Jesus. The word draws people to faith. Many more believe because of his word. It wasn't secondhand information anymore. They had checked it out for themselves. And here's, if you don't hear me say anything else other than what I've already said, hear this too. You've got to own your faith. The thing that concerns me about this generation of high school students that will leave high school, graduate, growing up in church, will go off to college, at least 65% of those students, if not more, quit going to church. And you say, well, why? Well, because maybe it was convenient. Maybe their parents made them go. I think part of it is their faith was not their own. Their faith was contingent upon their youth minister, their pastor, their mom, their dad, their friends. They get out of that environment and they realize they don't know what they believe. And some colleges do a great job of tearing down what you thought you believed. So what these men are saying, these women are saying, is not to denigrate or disparage the woman, but we're not believing anymore just because of what you said. We've experienced it for ourselves. It's real to us. We're first-generation believers. God doesn't have any grandchildren. We're just children. And it's not reliant on the faith of somebody else. Now, maybe their faith brought us to Jesus, but at some point, it's got to be us. It's got to be your faith. So they tell the woman, it's no longer because of what you said, but we believe because we've heard for ourselves. And we know, indeed, that you are the Savior of the world. Think about that for a minute. These are Samaritans who were hated by the Jews. So who did the Jews think the Messiah was coming for? Them and them only. In fact, John chapter 1 says, He came to his own, and what did his own do? Received him not. But to any of them that called on the name of the Lord, he gave them the right to become children of God. So for the Samaritans to acknowledge, this is indeed the Savior of the what? World. Not just the Savior of the Jews. Not just the Savior of the Samaritans. Not just the Savior of me or you, but the Savior of the world. Salvation is offered across the world to those that would place their faith in Jesus Christ. And for the Samaritans to finally acknowledge that, it's really the first time in in the New Testament that somebody's acknowledging you're the Savior of the world. You are the Messiah that's been promised in the Old Testament. You're the Savior of the world. Unbelief can be caused by many things. From intentional hard-heartedness, there's some that have heard the gospel and just say, I can't accept that. To others who've just never heard it. Lack of information or exposure to the gospel. But the second point is there's a difference in belief. I'm going to read the rest of the passage for the next two points. Verse 43. After the two days, so he spends two days with them in Samaria. And again, that's something in and of itself. A Jew would not have even gone through Samaria. A Jew certainly would not have talked to this woman at the well. But now they ask him, spend a couple days with us. So he does. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. 
For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore, he came again to to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come into Judea, into Galilee, out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that this that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. For the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus had said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So there's difference in belief. There's some that aren't going to believe at all, but there's kind of three steps I want you to see in this passage. One, there's shallow belief. That's the case where all you believe in are signs and wonders. There's hopeful belief in that maybe Jesus is more than just a miracle worker. Maybe he really is the Messiah. Maybe he can heal my son. And then there's a belief where you're convinced this is the Messiah. So after two days, he went forth into Galilee. So Jesus has been in, if I had a map here, he's been around Jerusalem. We find out earlier in chapter 4, the reason he leaves Jerusalem is the heat's getting turned up and it's not time for him yet to be glorified or certainly arrested and put to death. So he leaves Jerusalem and heads towards Galilee. And the thing that gets confusing is he says he's heading down to Galilee, but he's actually going north. He's going up, but the reason it's down is because everything's downhill from Jerusalem. The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. So he's been over 1,000 feet above sea level. He's heading down towards the Galilee region, has to go through Samaria. Now he's leaving Samaria. He's going into the Galilee region. And the Galileans received him. They showed some level of belief, and yet their belief was in the fact they had been at the feast in Jerusalem along with Jesus and saw him perform miracles. And he's going to point that out here in just a minute. He came again to Cana. This is where he made the water into the wine. So we're going to see early on in John that Jesus has had an encounter with a religious leader, Nicodemus. He's had an encounter with a sinful woman at the well. Now he's going to have an encounter with a royal official. The gospel is going to all of these kinds of people. So they believe because of what they have seen, these miracles. But there's a royal official, a nobleman, probably um, part of Herod Antipas, probably part of his court, lived in Capernaum, would have had wealth, influence, power, royal official, but his son's sick. His son's sick. And he had probably expended every resource he had. He had probably had the doctors over. He had probably spent all the money he could possibly spend. He's out of options. And so he hears about Jesus, and he's heard that Jesus is able to do miracles, and he hears that Jesus is coming into the region. So he leaves, and I love the fact he goes. He doesn't just send a servant to encourage Jesus to come, but he himself goes and and encounters Jesus and implores him to come down. 
In fact, the word implore means continuous action. He doesn't just ask one time, but he's to the point of begging, and he's probably to the point of following Jesus around. Please, sir, come down to heal my son. He had swallowed his pride, and he had asked Jesus for help. He assumed a couple of things, though. He assumed, number one, Jesus couldn't heal long distance. (laughs) Jesus is going to have to come down to heal his son. And the other thing that he assumed is Jesus couldn't do anything once his son's dead. And so Jesus responds, not just to this man, but to other people that are listening. He says, you know what? You people won't believe until you see a sign or a wonder. You simply won't believe. And unfortunately, the belief in signs and wonder is shallow. And, and that's what we see back in chapter 3 when it talks about that many believed because of what Jesus was doing around Jerusalem, and yet he did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because their belief wasn't salvation. It wasn't saving belief. It was just acknowledging that he is God. And the scary thing for us is you can say you believe in God, but if you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, if you've never confessed with your mouth that he is Lord and that God's raised him from the dead, that's what will save you. The demons believe and tremble. These people in Galilee believed that he was something special and maybe even that he was from God because he's doing all these miracles. But they didn't have a a faith that got beyond shallow into convinced. So he's begging Jesus. And Jesus makes this comment, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply won't believe. And the man implores him again, Sir, come down before my child dies. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't even dispute the fact that what Jesus has said is true. He doesn't deny it. He also doesn't try to pull rank. You know, this guy's a royal official. He could have probably called some people and compelled Jesus to come to Capernaum. But he doesn't do that. He says, sir, please, before my son dies, second request. And what does Jesus say? Go, your son lives. The man received a bigger miracle than he had even thought of, and that is Jesus can heal from afar. He can heal from a distance. And he believed him. He believed the word. He's convinced. He has faith. Go, your son lives. Think about who made that comment. Jesus has had a conversation with Nicodemus, a religious leader. He's had a conversation with a woman at the well, a sinful person. Now he's having a conversation with a Roman royal official. The gospel's going out. But when Jesus says, go, your son will live, how can he say that? It's because he has been sent by his father to do what? Die. Your son, sir, is going to live. But the truth is, Jesus who's speaking that was not going to live. Within a couple of years, he was going to be crucified on a cross, put to death. Now the good news is he rose from the dead. But I think sometimes the encounters Jesus has with people, they don't know what's coming for Christ, but he does. He knows the cup that one day he's going to have to drink of. He knows the cross that he's going to be crucified on. So for him to answer this guy's request, to say, your son lives, go. And the man believes and begins that journey back to Galilee. So my last thought is the impact of belief. Belief in this guy has gone from shallow to hopeful to convinced. So as he's going down, he's coming out of the mountains of Cana. He's headed down. It's only about 18 miles. 
How do you think he was traveling? Jesus walked everywhere he went. This guy was a royal official. He's probably on horseback. 18 to 20 miles would have taken a day by foot. It would have just taken a few hours by horseback. But it doesn't seem like he's in a hurry because it's the next day before he gets there. So something's happened at Capernaum. What's happened? Jesus has healed his son. At the moment he said he would be healed, the son now begins to get well. And the servants of this man, we got to go find him and let him know, your son's better. So when the slaves meet him and say that his son was living, he inquired, when did he start to get better? And they said, the seventh hour. And he recognized that's exactly the moment that I was having the conversation with Jesus. One o'clock. Your son's well. The father knew that's where he became convinced. He himself believed in his whole household. We see that other places. We see it over in Caesarea in the book of Acts. But the life-changing impact of the gospel message in this man's life not only changed him, but it changed his whole household, his wife, his children, his servants, saw a difference in him. And so they believed because of him. Men and women, that's the impact our belief should have on the people around us. If you're truly a child of God, there's a well of life within you that should spring up within you and splash on other people. They ought to get spiritually wet just hanging out with you. And, and want to know the reason for the hope that's within you, and you tell them it's Jesus. There ought to be people that come to know Christ because of your life. And that's what happened in this man's case. So I'm going to close with just two truths about faith. First, belief comes from hearing God's Word. Faith comes from hearing God's Word. Romans, this is Paul writing in Romans 10, 14 through 17. Paul says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. How are they going to hear without a preacher? Guess who the preachers are? You. Not just those of us that are paid to preach, but anybody who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ can give testimony of Jesus. So faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So people need to see more than just miraculous signs. They need to hear the truth of the gospel. So faith is, comes from hearing God's word. And secondly, faith grows by exercise. When you first come to faith in Christ, it's kind of like the chair you're sitting in. You've all walked in today. You've sat in a chair. I didn't see a single one of you test that chair out to see if it would hold you. Have you ever gone to sit in a chair that didn't hold you? Okay, two reasons it might not hold you. Somebody may have said, here, sit here, and as soon as you went to sit, they pulled the chair out from under you. See, I have a brother that's about five years older than me. I've experienced that. It ought to be a tip-off when your five-year-old older brother is offering to do something nice for you. There's something coming. <laughs> but have you ever sat in a chair that didn't hold you up? That's embarrassing. The chairs break sometimes. So you could say, well, I've demonstrated faith in this chair, but that's really more trust because Hebrews 1 says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. So faith's not about sight. 
But in early days of your walk with Christ, it is a lot about sight. He, he gives you enough light for every step. But the more you walk with Christ, the more faith is about, I can't see what's around the next corner. But you've come to know God. So even though you don't know the future and what the future holds, you know who holds the future. And there's some of you right now, this is hitting your ears and you think, you know, you're right. There's things, I'm, I'm praying about where I'm going to go to college. I'm praying about a career. I'm praying about a relationship. And I don't see how this is going to work out. And yet you've been walking with God long enough that you understand faith is not about sight. Faith is about knowing God. And the more you demonstrate, the more you exercise faith, the more your faith grows. And the more you're able to walk in such a way that you just know God. And you know that God's plan for you is not to sell you off the end of the world. It's, a, it's to give you a future and a hope. It's to one day bring you to be with him for eternity in heaven. So faith grows by exercise. So how's your exercise? Let's don't talk about the Corona 15. <laughs> how's your spiritual exercise? What is God doing in your life right now that requires faith? Because you're going to have a shallow belief until your faith gets comes to the point where God's all you've got to rely on. How's your faith? Let's pray together. Father, thank you.